But let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this beautiful Lord's Day. This is the day that you have made, and we rejoice in it. Thank you for accomplishing all that was necessary for us to rest and to enjoy our lives in you. We pray, Father, that as we look to your word, that we would be given a biblical framework for thinking about money and wealth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what does modern man do in America? The typical person, you think of the wealthy, and you think of, ooh, you know, those are the bad guys. Modern man really does despise the wealthy and despise wealth, but at the very same time, envies wealth, which is hypocritical. You shouldn't hate someone for having what you really want yourself. Um, But the Bible does not disparage wealth at all. The Bible does warn about the temptations that come along with wealth, right? But it doesn't disparage wealth. In fact, wealth is a blessing from the Lord. And I want to show you that. Uh, What the Bible does disparage is wickedness, right? You oftentimes hear in the world these days that God is for the poor. Well, that is a partial truth. That is a half-truth. Do you know the proper explanation of that? God is for the righteous poor. Oftentimes, those who have uh, synthesized a Marxist worldview with the Bible, they like to echo that. God is for the poor and he's against the rich. No, indeed. That is not true at all. That's a half-truth. God is for the righteous poor and against the wicked rich. God is no respecter of persons. He does not show partiality. Whether you are rich or poor, he uh, will punish you for your sins. And if you are wicked, whether you are rich or poor, he is against you. Amen? So the Bible does often speak like that. You know, um, you know, speaks as though God is setting the captives free or he is bringing good news to the poor. That's because in the introduction of the New Testament, we have a new paradigm, the new covenant, which is coming into the world, where he is going to now oppose the, the rich wicked and proud, dethrone them, and exalt the children of Abraham. That's what Mary says in her Magnificat. The problem is if you just have this Marxist worldview where if you are rich, you are evil, and if you are poor, you are justified. As soon as the children of Abraham are blessed and increase in wealth, then what? Then God has to be against them, tearing them down and blessing others. And as they get blessed, then he's against them. So wealth becomes, in this Marxist worldview, wealth becomes a hot potato that everyone is trying. No, I don't want this. I don't want this because God is for me and he's made me wealthy. Now he's against me. Uh, No, God is for the wicked and he's against the wicked and he is for the righteous regardless of class. So this we have to get this framework in our minds as we continue. Consider Abraham, very wealthy. His wealth was a blessing from the Lord. Amen. All right. Consider Job as well. Job was very wealthy and a righteous man, the Bible says, simultaneous, simultaneously. He was more wealthy after the trial than before. God blessed him. The wise men, Joseph of Arimathea, Barnabas, all of these are examples of rich men who followed after the Lord. Even more than likely, Matthew the tax collector was a wealthy man. Now, his calling was to be an itinerant preacher and a disciple with Jesus. And so he left all of his wealth for an unemployment calling. And that happens sometimes too. It's not everyone's specific calling to be wealthy. 
relatively speaking. But being wealthy is a blessing from the Lord. Make sense? Matthew 19, 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, real estate, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. In other passages of this same exact incident, Jesus says they will receive a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come, eternal life. <laughs> so you can see that when you are saved, when you repent and you relativize all the other things in your life, family and real estate, um, your finances, and you follow King Jesus, he promises you to bless you 40-fold, 100-fold. That's 100%. That's good. That's a good uh, interest rate, huh, Nick? That's ten thousand percent. Wow. <clears throat> Man, that's good to know. So that's that's ten thousand. Jesus is promising ten thousand percent interest. Yeah. Look at. Yeah. Over time. Over time. That's right. The promises of God do not come to us instantly. Only the devil gives instant gratification, and then he takes it away from you, right, and then laughs, right? Um, But Jesus does promise us inheritance, profit, interest rate at 10,000%. But those are covenant promises that are not given to us automatically or instantaneously, but they are given to us over time. And here's a very important thing that that I think is true. These promises are to be received from us generationally. Does that make sense? So what I mean by that is, whereas we, as an individual, may not experience the fullness of the promises, our generations and our legacy um, can, as long as they remain faithful to the Lord. That's how I understand these promises. And then, of course, in eternal life, you get the full flowering, the full culmination of all the uh, promises. Amen? All right. Deuteronomy 28, verse 8. Could um, someone look that up for me? And then someone else, Brother Henry, would you get Deuteronomy 28? And would someone else, anybody else have their Bible over here? Psalm 112. I need someone who can read loudly. Not all at once. Not all at once. Psalm 112, 1 through 3. Brother Henry, you have the Deuteronomy 28 passage? The Lord will command the blessing on you in your borns and in all that you undertake. All right, and verses 11 and 12. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your livestock, and in the fruit of your ground, within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open you, will open to you His good treasury, the heavens to give the the rain to your land and its season, and to bless all the work of your hands, and you shall lend many, lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. All right. What are the blessings there? If y'all were listening carefully, what were some of the blessings there? You will be a lender, not a borrower. And that means, based on other passages, you will be receiving interest on your lending. Um, rain on your crops, so fertility. Um, harvest, abundance, of, of overflowing farmer's market. Your work will be blessed so that it's fruitful and not um, toilsome. 
Right, yes. In, innovation, right? Technology, wealth. Those are all different types of wealth. Beyond wealthy. We are, we are so wealthy we've forgotten the Lord and we've forgotten where our wealth comes from. And we, have, we as autonomous man have turned to technology as our means for attacking God and building paradise on earth without him. That's what we're trying to do. And we'll end up, it will end up being a self-destruction, atom bomb destruction, if God doesn't change our course. But yet you see these promises, these covenantal blessings and promises to the children of God in Deuteronomy 28. Unfortunately, Schofield, who was a, a I hate to put it this way, who taught very um, bad things and put them in the Schofield Bible and spread it all over the United States. Um, he taught a system of theology that said these passages do not apply to us. Right? You have to be very careful that you don't create a system that you then put over the Bible and that system cuts out large portions of Scripture so as to not apply to you. Schofield taught and his descendants taught that these promises are for the Jews and would only come to fruition in the future millennial kingdom with the Jews, with Jesus in Jerusalem as the king over the Jews. No. All the promises of, of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. All the promises given to Abraham and to all the patriarchs are for the children of Abraham. And we are children of Abraham who believe in Jesus Christ, the true circumcision, right? So these passages are applied to us today. We can receive them. But they are to be received the same way they were to be received from those faithful Israelites back then, generationally, over time, not automatic, but incrementally unfolding um, over time. He's a father. He doesn't give us what is not good for us. But as a father, he provides all our needs. And, th- and those promises are the backdrop. Psalm 112, 1 through 3. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Amen. What is the promises there? There's one that keeps being repeated, which I think is very important. His generations. His righteousness will last forever. This is the promise of legacy. Of uh, multi-generational legacy. The Bible says that the wealth of the wicked is, is stored up for the righteous. So that the wicked's wealth or the wicked's legacy is eventually um, cut off and transferred to the righteous. This is how history unfolds itself as God blesses his people. That's another way of saying this is that the gold of the Egyptians eventually comes to the people of God. Remember how they were freed and, they, and the Egyptians are like, here. The Bible promises that they, they will build barns and they will build houses, but you will inhabit them. This is a promise over and over throughout all of Scripture that as a Christian is faithful, his legacy lasts and his legacy over time inherits the, the wealth and the technology and the innovation and the discoveries of the wicked. So when the wicked like a blind squirrel finds a nut here and there and innovates or invents or discovers, which I would, I would actually argue is rare. But when they do build on the discoveries of Christians in the past, it is the Christians who will long-term, over generations, be blessed from those things. Christians are people of the future because we have a promise of long-lasting generational legacy. 
is this worldview sinking in a little bit? It's a, I mean, it's a worldview, that, and I've been, I teach it, and I've been teaching it for a while. But you can see these promises do promise wealth. I'm trying to explain this because I don't want you to think this is the prosperity gospel. All right, that is a bad thing. That is a thing, and it's a bad thing. But what, what's the difference here? Can you distinguish between the prosperity gospel and the, and the promises of covenant to God's people unfolding over time? Yeah, prosperity gospel seems to emphasize like it's for you, not for the kingdom. For your success. And and in fact you engage in generosity to you engage in generosity to manipulate the the system, the force, in order to receive back instant, instant, and automatic, without exception, money back to you to be consumed upon your lusts. That's different. Whereas the Bible says, as you seek first the kingdom, these things will be added unto you. And as your generations seek first the kingdom, these things continue to be added unto them. Because as you give, he keeps your barns full. That's, I think that's the key difference, is the purpose of the wealth. Um, there's some other differences, though, Brother Henry. That's the first qualification. Right. The second qualification, man cannot serve two masters. Amen. I would say the prosperity gospel does serve mammon. It serves the belly, the God of more and more for me in, in history. And uh, whereas this um, cannot be received without regeneration of the Spirit of God, trust, faithfulness, patience, perseverance, and following the rules. Right. They don't in the prosperity gospel. They don't think of wealth coming through work. They think of wealth coming through uh, technique, through uh, faith-filled words, or through their um, giving of this or, or planting a seed here. That's technique. That's another way of saying magic. They believe in magic. Uh, we don't use that word anymore, but that's the idea of magic. That with technique you can manipulate the universe. To, to turn um, something into gold. It's another word for alchemy. And I do believe it's at the heart of the temptation of Jesus when the devil said, worship me and you'll turn stone into bread. Instant gratification, instant belly fold, pro- instant prosperity, automatic. You now have the power with faithful words to accomplish this. That's different than living in covenant with Christ, being patient, working, recognizing that work and, and wait. Working and waiting is how he puts bread on the table. Some prosperity, uh, and this is not directly related, uh, a lot of times they'll use rich people who give well to their ministry as examples to lead others. To sure. In, in fact, they themselves, they themselves live indulgent lives in, because they say they have to be a good example. Yeah. What are some twisted justifications? <laughs> Yeah, and and then you will become rich. Yes, it's a scheme, teaching a technique, teaching alchemy, right? And um, it's, it's most certainly evil. 
The, the proper reaction to that, though, is not to disparage wealth, disparage prosperity. If you do that, you're not going to be able to understand the half the Bible, because the Bible promises health, wealth, and prosperity. But how do those promises unfold to us? It's different than the way the prosperity gospel preaches. They preach technique. We preach perseverance in faith and repentance, allowing, leaving the results up to God. Okay? The, uh, the other mistake with the prosperity gospel is the poverty gospel. And that's taught in, in churches like that we would probably go to, um, where it's somehow holier to be poor. It's holier to live simplistically. Now, it is godly to be frugal and to be a faithful steward over every penny. But it's not any more godly to be poor than it is to be rich. In fact, being in, stuck in poverty, especially real thorough poverty, like mental poverty, relational poverty, emotional poverty, that very well might be a bad sign. Right? Um, there are some people who are poor financially because they're following their calling. And their calling doesn't pay as much as if they worship the devil. You understand what I mean? Um, but, but, and that's fine. But those people aren't poor in the holistic sense. They're just financially poor. Like for example, when I became a Christian school teacher, and Emily and I were married, we made $15,000 a year. As far as the government on paper thought, we were dirt poor. They thought we were like poor, poor. And we lived in Section 8 housing around people who were holistically poor. But we weren't poor in all the other ways. Do you understand what I mean? Uh, we just had a calling at that time in our life, which didn't pay that much. But, and that was okay. Um, but we weren't poor in, in its totality. And so, anyway, there's a lot to say about that. But the poverty gospel is just as erroneous. It denies the promises of God. It rejects his good gifts. It doesn't save. It doesn't pursue inheritance or multi-generational faithfulness. It just says, I'm holier because I'm poor. No, not necessarily. That might actually be the opposite. You might be poor because you are unfaithful with what God has given you. You might be. You might be poor because someone beat you up and stole all your money. But you understand what I mean. (laughs) Modern man's hypocritical denunciation of the rich is misplaced. We are to denounce wickedness, not wealth. We should desire to be godly, faithful, upper middle class. Fruitful, godly, faithful, upper middle class. That should be our desire. Let me, let me give you the biblical verses for this. <laughs> Godliness leads to middle class. A godly society has a middle class. An ungodly society does not. Okay? The Bible says, uh, David says, give me enough money, you know, so that I can live well and not be hungry and steal for my bread. But don't give me too much that I forget you. Y'all know that passage. That is a prayer to be middle class. (laughs) It really is. So, you know, I... Yeah, so a Christian once said, you know, what my goal is, is to have a private jet. I thought, no, 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 no. That's not a proper goal, okay? Seek first the kingdom. Yeah, yeah, seek first the kingdom, but oh, I want a private jet. No. And that's, I don't think of that as middle class, okay? I really do think, and, and I'm, not, I'm saying think because I'm not trying to speak so dogmatically about this. Because King Solomon was not middle class. Well, King Solomon did... 
Well, you know what happened to him. So I stick by my... I, <laughs> Yeah, no, the, the desire is, hey, I want to be middle class. I want to be upper middle class. I want to grow in wealth, pass that down to my kids. I think that that's the, that's the right um, desire. And um, throughout all of that, I want to use my wealth to increase the kingdom, to advance the kingdom, and to carry out my calling in this life. It is not godly to desire to be poor. That is the poverty gospel. It is um, phony self-righteousness. Nor do I think it is righteous to desire to be flying around in private jets like a big shot. No. Ultimately, we want to be precisely what God wants us to be. And I think what that means is middle class. Generally speaking, if someone comes and beats you up and steals everything and all of a sudden you're lower class, no one's going to judge you. Right? And if, or if you somehow are given a billion dollars and now you're upper class, no one's going to judge you. I'm speaking in generalities. All things being considered equal, middle class is godliness. All right. Moving on to um, uh, private property rights. Yo, did y'all ever think you'd be in a Sunday school class where we talked about property rights? You know, it's a big topic these days, you know. I know my, my kids love to talk about this sort of stuff. Did you ever think that Christianity was so practical, right, so down to earth that it had so many answers for how to live? It, indeed, it, it does. Regardless of what Mr. Schofield taught us, it really does have a lot to say about how to live and um, how to think and how to treat your neighbor. And the Bible is very respectful of property rights. Can anyone give me some uh, examples of where the Bible defends the right to property. Jude, you got one? Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not steal. <laughs> right. That, that is first and foremost. Ten commandments. Thou shalt not steal. <laughs> Any economic system, whether it be the Austrian school. Help me out, Nick. Am I saying this right? Keynesian economics. Or... Keynesians are a little lax on this, right? They, because they, they do not start with the Bible, in my opinion. They start with human reason. And now they're not as wrong as the Marxists. And other economic, what would be that, the Frankfurt School? Or other, other types of economic schools? No, listen, you have to begin with the Bible. And I think the, probably the best place to begin with the Bible is thou shalt not steal. Let's start there. Private property. Thou shalt not steal is implied in the creation story as Adam and Eve were given the garden. That's their property. They are to work it and to keep it and to exercise God's dominion over it. Right? That's implied in the narrative. Just as thou shalt not commit adultery is implied in the narrative as he, he and his wife are now married. And all the Ten Commandments are implied right there in the beginning. And they are written on the heart of men, even those who do not have the Bible proper. What Paul says in Romans chapter 1 are the Gentiles. This is why you can see these, this sort of moral law throughout society hit and miss. But there are some societies which begin to say, you know, we hate God, and so we're going to suppress the truth of God. And one of the things they begin to suppress is, his, is, is upholding a private property. And that's what's taking place in our nation. When the head of the um, World Economic Forum, Charles Schwab, comes out and says, by 2030... No one will own anything, and we will all be happy for it. Mm-mm. No, sir. All right? he, is, he is suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness, and he is suppressing some of the basic principles 
Private property. Why does man have private property? Because man is created in the image of God and is called to exercise dominion. That is to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and to bring out its full potential. What portion of the earth do I exercise dominion over? Your property. See? Well, individual, but the Bible teaches individualism and also collectivism in different ways. What it doesn't teach is radical of either of those. But it says the individual that owns the property owns that property unto the Lord. And we'll get to all of that. But it's very important that we hold property rights for the, very, for the sake of humanity. When you steal a person's property, you take away his opportunity to exercise dominion. And you are robbing a little piece of his humanity. And you are, in fact, making him a slave. Slaves do not own property. Slaves have their humanity stripped from them. Um, yes, Monica? Yes. So. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. No, it's, it's when, when my neighbor and I had to figure out where the property line is. It's important because I'm responsible to cut the grass up to my property because I'm called to tend the garden, so to speak. Moreover, I'm, I'm called to make the most out of it. Now, the, it's not a two-for-one. I'm not living in the Garden of Eden, and I don't live in an agricultural society. Um, it's, but the principles are all still there. The property boundaries are still important. So what Monica's bringing up is the um, landmark laws. So bonus points for Monica. <laughs> the landlar- landmark laws. The most obvious one was you were not allowed to, to in the middle of the night, Go to your property's boundary marker. They would mark the property with piles of stone. You're not allowed in the middle of the night to disassemble that and reassemble it a few feet over. <coughs> Excuse me. That was a common form of theft. In the middle of the night, you'd move the boundary markers. You do it a little bit here, a little bit there. Eventually, you own a couple more extra acres. Right? Um, the Bible had landmark laws because the Bible respects private property. Our society has boundaries and surveying because the Bible does. Restitution laws. If you, if you steal from someone or if you've, if you've set a fire on your property and it burns down your neighbor's crops, you are responsible to restore that because of private property. Laws against theft. And even you're not even supposed to want their property. It's not yours. It's on the other side of the fence. So there's laws against even theft in the heart. That's how much God... Uh, cares about private property. A society that wants to have justice and flourishing and abundance and blessing must respect property rights. A society that doesn't believe in property rights is a society founded on theft. And when you break thou shalt not steal, trust me, you're breaking all the other ones too. Just as Paul said, when you violate the law at one point, you violate them all. Well, there is a there is a bill that is being considered, or a, a, you know, the idea is being considered that the government would print off money. Essentially, I know it's not actually being printed, but they would give fifteen thousand dollars to a first time home buyer just right out of the gate. I don't know, Miss Sharon. I don't know if you heard about this. 
Now, of course, if that happens, I would anticipate um, large demand in the housing market, prices going up, and a lot of people who shouldn't be buying homes, buying homes. Then later, foreclosing and the banks being bailed out and the prices dropping drastically, and we have another one of those bubbles like we did in 2007. That's just a prediction. There's so many factors. Who God only knows, but that's what I think could potentially happen. That's what, yeah. And it led to the big. I made 15000 a year. I was qualified for a $150,000 home. My, my house payment was higher than my income. <laughs> we did it, but we finagled. Because, well, you see, because the thing is, though, because I was poor financially, but I wasn't poor in all the other ways. I had already had plans for my basement to be rented out. So, you know, I had, I had the system all worked out. Um, but, hey, the, the evil, what our, uh, what our messianic state intended for evil, God used for good for me. And then the bubble went up, 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 up. I sold. I made $55,000 profit in two years. Paid for my seminary and then came to Louisiana. So... My seminary training was paid for by that, by that bubble. Can you, can you believe that? Now, if I would have waited a little longer, I would have made 100000 But, Nick, you can't. You never know. You got to you get while the getting's good. But look at what Micah says in chapter 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. That means they're meditating. They're, you know, they're up in the middle of the night thinking about the bad things they're going to do. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. So this is a powerful person who's meditating in the middle of the night how to use their power for some evil deed. What is it? Verse 2, they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They're exercising eminent domain. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Now, who has the power to devise such plans and then carry them out? The government. It's always been the state who has been given the sword by God to exercise justice, the state, when it is empowered by Satan, uses that sword to, to rob, steal, kill, and destroy, just as Satan does. And so this is the perfect example of this was um, Naboth's vineyard, where Ahab, or Jezebel, coveted Naboth's vineyard and eventually, with force and power, stole his vineyard, exercising imminent domain over property that was not theirs. The Bible explicitly, explicitly condemns the state's um, confiscation of private property. If you have a a society built on that very basic principle, what can you expect? Yeah, you can at least expect poverty in due time. You, You can't have a society which celebrates confiscation by the government and a free society at the same time. Ezekiel 46, 18, the prince, that is the government, shall not take any of the inheritance of the people. Now, what is happening right now in our government, which economic experts say is a direct attack on inheritance? I forget the name of it, but I know what you're talking about. Yes, but that's a direct attack on inheritance. Well, what's the indirect secret thing that is happening right now, Jude? Inflation, that's right. So you can tell we, you know. 
Christchurch Academy, boy, we talk about all kind of stuff. So inflation is a secret tax where the value of the, of the dollar is being stripped away so that your savings that you're going to pass down to your children are diminished. They are taking power, privilege, and property from the middle class and diverting it to the rich in the name of the poor. Because you know when you confiscate and distribute to the poor, it immediately goes to China. Because they purchase goods made in China. Now, how God moves the the wealth and the property from one nation to another, how one nation was once the head and becomes the tail, that's big picture stuff here. But that is what is happening in our nation. We are becoming the tail, and China and India are becoming the head. Now, what will, now where will that lead in the future? I make a prediction. I predict that Christianity will explode. It is exploding. You, ha- you have statistics have come out that say you have a greater chance of being a Christian if you're born in Beijing than if you were born in New York. No, I mean Boston. I'm sorry. I think it's true. Look. Something is happening. The wealth of the nations, cultural supremacy is moving east. Everyone knows it. And um, the question is, will the gospel begin to explode and we see a rebirth of Christendom? I think that's the future. But hey, you know, it's not a, it's not a prophecy. It's just a, a gut prediction. Y'all know, hopefully you know the difference. So, Notice what the prince is not allowed to do. They shall not take any of the inheritance of the people by any means, thrusting them out of their property. He shall give his sons their inheritance out of his own property. He should not take the inheritance of the middle class and transfer it to his sons. Sound familiar? So that none of my people shall be scattered from his property. Inflation harms directly the middle class because it devalues the the purchasing power of the dollar. Help me out, Nick. Correct me if I say anything wrong. Since the 1970s, the dollar's purchasing power has gone down, 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 down. But when you're wealthy and you're not dependent on building wealth with that monthly income, you, you have your money in other things. You understand? The, 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 you have your money in gold or in real estate that's not being inflated at the same rate. Right? Now, in addition to that, the wealthy have massive amounts of debt in dollars, which their debt is shrinking. The, what their debt that they use as leverage to buy up more and more, their leverage is shrink, their debt is shrinking while their true wealth and assets of real estate and gold and land and farmland is increasing. It's the middle class that's just getting that monthly check trying to get ahead that is having their purchasing power stripped away from them and given to the quote poor, but it's actually going to the rich. So that as our nation continues to build an entire economic structure on theft, we will destroy our middle class and have an oligarchy, an aristocracy, and a very poor, um, you know, urbanized society, more than likely. Um, Unless what? Unless there is regeneration in the hearts of many people through the preaching of the gospel, and the people rise up and say, no more. No more systematic injustice, systematic theft. That's the only way. I don't see any signs of that happening anytime soon, but that's, that's the prayer and the hope. Nick, would you want to add something there? Uh, yeah, well, it, the inflation hurts the poor the worst because they have, relatively speaking, all their wealth is in dollars because they live paycheck to paycheck. So unless they put it in something like that, <coughs> 
It's hard to do because they're saving like 200 a month. Yeah, they did. Yeah, or, two or 300 a month. Faster than the middle class and the class. That's right. That's right. But in all of this, one thing I remember is that the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous, and that the legacy of the righteous extends. So whereas there may be a season for me where I'm just, I'm not able to move, I know that the promises of God are for my legacy. If, and, and they can't stop me from passing down true wealth, the true wealth of godliness and contentment and values. And as long as I can pass that down to the next generation, at some point that will actually have tangible earthly manifestation. Okay, so that's my strategy. Now, while the Bible does celebrate private property, I don't want to get ahead of us. Private property is not ultimate. The Bible does put limits on private property. And I'm going to talk about some of this in my sermon, but there were laws on plucking. Your neighbor could pluck some of your grapes and some of your grain. We'll talk about that in this, Sunday, this morning, so I'm not going to say too much about it. Your neighbor couldn't go into your property with an ox and a cart and a you know, sickle. But if they were starving, if they were hungry, if they were poor, if it was a, a poor sojourner on an empty belly, they could hand pick some grain. You, know, you also have the margin laws where you were not to cultivate your field. You're not to harvest your field to the very corners. You were to round the corners of the field so that the margins were for the poor. The, the Bible story that demonstrates that is Ruth, Ruth and Naomi. Um, God's laws, God's private property laws, allow space and margins, literally, for the poor, for the sojourner, for the oppressed. God's laws are good. They're not harsh. These um, limitations on private property were not to be enforced by government coercion or the sword. At no point does the Bible offer any um, prerogative for the government to go in there and punish someone for not leaving the margin. This was done out of the charity and generosity of hearts, which comes from a, a culture that loves the Lord. As a culture rejects Jesus Christ, they reject margins, they punish the poor. The state then takes the place to use coercion to do so, and it grows in its messianic powers. That's what's happening in our own nation. Of course, and there was another limitation on property. When the ox was sowing, when the ox was plowing the field, he got to eat some too. So he got to share with the animals, got to share with resourcing the church, got to share with neighbors that have burdens and poverty, you got to share with those people who are destitute and impoverished. You see this whole neighborly community system of private property. Our, our government system is totally out of whack because our hearts are, because our hearts have turned from, from God to mammon. All right. We do not have enough time to get onto the um, to free market and whatnot, so we will do this next time. Y'all have a great Lord's Day.